BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Maryland. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code OLDLINE150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Maryland today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Maryland only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days from issuance. Please play responsibly. For help, visit mdgamblinghelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM National Harbor. Promotional not available in Washington, D.C. Latin American History Podcast, Episode 10, The Amazon. Sprawling across several million kilometres and nine countries, the Amazon Basin is vast. It is synonymous with wild, untamed jungle and is home to some of the last uncontacted people on Earth. Today, aside from a few cities such as Manaus, the area is for the most part sparsely populated and home to remote, small farms and tribal people living as hunter-gatherers or subsistence agriculturalists. In popular conception, it is a vast, mysterious place where noble savages live as they have done since the beginning of human history. The jungle is so thick, it must be impossible to build a large and developed society there. It's a place full of anthropological richness, but lacking in history. That's the traditional story, at least. In recent years, there has been a growing trend towards reconceptualizing the history of the Amazon. New discoveries have led some people to the conclusion that the region was not always remote and sparsely populated. In fact, it was home to a busy and thriving set of peoples who built roads, buildings and even cities. In this episode, we'll examine this new evidence and try to determine the truth of the matter. Much of this reimagining of the Amazon's history comes from recent discoveries deep in its interior. There is, however, one small pre-Columbian archaeological site in the region, which we've known about for a long time, Marajo. This can be found on an island at the mouth of the river, where it meets the Atlantic coast. Here a civilization known as the Marajoara developed. They seem to have created a fairly advanced state. Their peak was between the years 800 and 1400 AD, although the area was inhabited much earlier. Across the island, large mounds of earth can be found which are clearly man-made. Although we know next to nothing about the people who built them, it seems impossible that a small tribe could have moved this much earth. The island is prone to flooding, and it's possible that these mounds were built in order to create land which could be relied on to stay dry. Pottery has also been found, decorated with intricate patterns. Some of these pieces are really beautiful, and they're unlike anything else found in the Amazon region. They caught the eye of archaeologists and historians, 
as the best pieces can rival anything found on the continent. This is puzzling, as they exist so far from other similar cultures. Normally an area produces many peoples, who influence and build on each other's achievements, but the Marajuara seem to have developed independently. The most common type of pottery is the burial urn, leading some people to believe that the Marajuara may have practiced ancestor worship. Beyond this, however, not much is known. Their settlements seem to have been abandoned by the time the Europeans arrived, and when they did come, the inhabitants of the island were largely wiped out by disease. Ironically, this means that although these people left behind the most evidence out of all the Amazonians, we know less about them than we do about those still living deep in the forest. Due to the island's size, it's around the same as Switzerland. It has been suggested that the Marajuara were most likely a culture rather than a unified state, although we can't say this for sure. Analysis of skeletons seems to suggest that some sort of military training was common as the bones have adapted to strong muscle development in key areas. This may support the idea that they were a disunified people and that they were fighting each other, although again there is a certain amount of speculation in this. There are a couple of theories as to who they were and where they came from. It's been suggested that they may have been an Andean people who travelled down the Amazon to build a new home. As we'll discover next week, the Andes was the centre of South American civilization, and the lack of advanced nearby cultures led some to the conclusion that the Marijuara must have been far-flung relatives and thus able to draw on the cultural history of the area. There was certainly interaction between the people of the mountains and those of the Amazon basin, with groups such as the Chachapoyas doing a brisk trade by bringing Amazon goods up to the highlands. This was, however, at the very top of the Amazon, and an extremely long way from the mouth of the Amazon, where Marijor was found. The river itself may have served as a highway, allowing easy travel through the impenetrable jungle, which makes the theory more plausible, but we really have no evidence for this idea. The civilization seems to have collapsed not too long before the arrival of the Europeans, and when they visited the island, they found an Arawak-speaking people living there. These people were living in a much simpler way than the Marijuarans, and they were not producing pottery of the same standard. The fact that they had occupied the land, however, and what's more, not long after the collapse, suggests the obvious conclusion that these were the descendants of the Marijo people. Could they have simply lost their civilization for unknown reasons, or were they in fact invaders who had destroyed other people's complex society? So we have long known that right on the edge of the Amazon, where it mates the sea, a complex culture did exist. However, this was only possible because of its location right on the edge of the region. Further in, all was wilderness, too dense to host civilization, and inhabited only by small-scale, scattered tribes. Well, actually, perhaps not. Due to modern techniques and the unfortunate fact of deforestation, We've now got greater access to the jungle, and a surprising picture is starting to emerge. It's important to note that archaeology in the Amazon is in its infancy, and has only really started to be practiced in the last few decades. I know I've said countless times on this podcast that we know little about the people we're studying, but in this case, we really do know almost next to nothing.
All we have is a series of radical and startling discoveries, which have forced a sudden reappraisal of the region's history. We do not, however, have enough information to work out how these discoveries fit together, the extent of civilization in the Amazon, and generally, what we're really looking at here. So with that said, what have we found? Well, let's start at the most basic level. It's long been assumed that hunting and gathering was a major activity in the jungles. Where farming did exist, it was small scale and rudimentary. This is how many of the traditional inhabitants live today, and after all, geography just doesn't lend itself to anything else. The jungle needs clearing, its soil isn't great, and you are so far from anything that even if you do produce lots of food, who will you sell your excess to? You're too far away from the rest of the developed world to learn these techniques, or to connect with them in any meaningful way. Across the globe, great civilizations have emerged where farming was easy. Egypt with its Nile Valley, Mesopotamia with its two rivers, Europe with its temperate climate, and northern India with its flat plains. It just seems like too great a task to make the transition to farming in the Amazon, and the isolation means you're unlikely to encounter other civilizations who you can learn from. Well, as you've probably guessed, I'm about to tell you that this is no longer thought to be true. In 2014, a study was done on soil composition, and it found that medium to large-scale farming does indeed seem to have been practiced. The study mapped the instances of a type of soil, known as black earth, in the Amazon. This soil has been enriched by human activity to make it up to three times richer in nutrients than it would be naturally, and therefore much more productive. Often shards of pottery or charcoal are found buried in this soil, providing further evidence of human habitation. The study found almost 1,000 locations where black earth is found, demonstrating that the practice of farming was probably widespread. These are not just confined to one area either, they're scattered across the central and eastern Amazon. It's likely that this is just the tip of the iceberg. These are just the instances which we know about. There are surely many more hidden in the forest. Furthermore, while it provides evidence of human habitation, a lack of black earth does not mean that humans weren't there. There is markedly less black earth in the western part of the Amazon. However, the land here is enriched naturally by rainwater running down from the Andes. So its lack may have been due to the fact that artificial enrichment wasn't necessary. Intensive farming and being able to provide a food surplus has been around the world proven to be one of the first steps in the development of civilization. Once you are confident that you can feed your population and have people to spare who are not required to spend all their time creating food, you can start to devote time and energy to other things. Once this stage is reached, you start to see the emergence of large settlements, perhaps the first cities. Despite various myths and rumours of lost cities in the jungle, for a long time we had no reason to believe that such settlements existed in the Amazon. Now, however, sites are popping up all over the place, and their size has really astounded historians. Having been forced to concede that the pre-Columbian Amazonians were more agriculturally developed than we previously thought, we're now confronted with the idea that they went even further than just developing farming techniques. They were more populous, advanced and organised than we thought, and they lived in large societies rather than small villages. Michael Heckenberger has focused on the Jingu River 
which runs north to south in the eastern part of the Amazon. He claims to have discovered numerous settlements in the area and believes that some may have been home to up to 1,000 people. What's fascinating about his discovery is that he's identified defined clusters of settlements and that these all share a similar layout to each other. This suggests unification and cohesion. These were quite possibly states rather than independent settlements. These people were probably ruled from a central city, with the surrounding clusters being within each one's borders. Furthermore, the locations of the settlements seem to have been planned, rather than have grown up organically, something which again suggests a centralised government. Eckenberger estimates that in total around 50,000 people may have lived in the area, not an inconsequential number for the era. They seem to have flourished between roughly the years 500 and 1500 AD. This is not an isolated case, however. In today's Bolivia, evidence of dense human habitation can also be found. In the Mojos region of the country, the human influence on the land is as varied as it is prevalent. Most obvious are the mounds, which rise up to five and a half metres above the surrounding land. There are over 2,000 of these that we know of, and many were used for residential purposes. Much of the land in the area is swampy, and these mounds allowed inhabitants to live on solid ground, as well as providing them with land suitable for farming. We know of at least two and a half million acres of raised land used for crop cultivation, and such a large scale suggests there must have been a considerable population. Like in Jingu, there appear to have been clusters of settlements, and this suggests some sort of cohesion. Centralised states, in other words, ruled from a capital. Some of these settlements are thought to have been quite large, and would have had public plazas, communal buildings and defensive fortifications. Mojos is a large area, and it's thought that it was inhabited by a variety of different people. This was not a monolithic culture, but instead a collection of different ethnic groups who spoke different languages and probably had different cultural practices. It was its own self-sustained world, one in which technology could develop and be passed around. There was probably a certain amount of competition and warfare between these different groups, judging by the defensive structures. It's estimated that around the time the Europeans started arriving, the total population may have been upwards of 100,000 people. So we have evidence of farming and of reasonable sized settlement, but how were these connected? How did people get between the settlements in their states? If large-scale settlement is evidence of societal development, then connectivity and travel are factors which allow an even higher level of civilization. In Mojos, it seems the various settlements in each polity were connected by causeways. These would have been man-made and allowed people to travel around the swampy environment with ease. These are without question an impressive bit of engineering and provide further evidence of the organised nature of the societies found there. Some of the causeways seem to meander rather than going directly from place to place, and these may have been weirs used for fishing. This, along with the farming, would have meant that people were well fed and had a balanced diet. There are also many canals, and these could have been used for drainage, but also for getting around. These were not isolated villages then, but part of a large and interconnected network of settlement. With this ease of travel, it's also possible for a central government to exert its control over surrounding settlements, 
an important marker of a developed society. The same was also true at Jingu, and there was a large road network there. Remember how I said that the settlements in Jingu seem to have been planned? Well, it's their road network which really demonstrates this. Roads would radiate outwards from the central city and lead directly from central plaza to central plaza. More important towns would sit on roads which travelled directly in exactly north, south, east and west from the capital and some large roads line up exactly with the sun on the days of the solstice. Incidentally, some of these roads were as large as 50 metres wide. It seems that rather than settlements growing up naturally and then being connected by roads, the whole arrangement was carefully planned. Roads and villages sat at precise angles to each other, which would have created an organised feeling, which might seem a bit strange to us. This layout meant that the population was dispersed across the tightly connected network of settlements, rather than concentrated in one city. While the population was considerable, it was spread out, an interesting adaptation to the jungle environment. A final method of transportation in the Amazon would have been river travel. Many of the largest settlements were based along the banks of the rivers which run through the Amazon basin, and it's likely that these may have formed a type of highway it would certainly have been easier to get around by boat than clear a path for long roads through the jungle. This may have led to a larger scale interconnection in the region. However, at this point, this is just speculation. We have no idea if connectivity and travel was confined to the various bubbles around the region, or if all the different centres interacted with each other. The Amazon is a massive place, and despite our newfound understanding of it, the jungle does seem to be a potential block for large-scale travel. Hopefully future work will illuminate the subject further. There is one more significant site in the Amazon which deserves mentioning. The geoglyphs of Acre. It was aerial photography as well as Google Maps which brought this site to our attention. And due to its relatively recent discovery, not much on the ground work has been done on them. They are, however, impressive and mysterious constructions. Like the famous Nazca Lines of Peru, these ditches and mounds are dug into the landscape and create perfect geometrical shapes. These include circles, squares and rectangles, many of which are over 30 feet in size. They are spread out across a region that spans around 150 miles, and their purpose is unknown. They are connected by a network of roads. However, so far, not much other evidence of human habitation has been found. We know of no cities or farms in the area, which supported the people who made them. It could be that the geoglyphs themselves were the settlements, and that the ditches were a form of boundary marking, or fortification. As so little excavation has been done in the area, however, it's also possible that they had some other purpose, and that the settlements just have not been located yet. The structures have only been revealed by recent deforestation. Before, they were covered by forest. Once the trees are cleared, the Amazon region takes on the appearance of a savannah with flat plains providing the perfect canvas for these geoglyphs. This deforestation is recent and is a cause for concern amongst environmentalists. We hate the idea of destroying a pristine wilderness. It seems likely, however, that the area had historically been deforested in order for the glyphs to be created and to be visible. Further excavation will require more deforestation, albeit on a much smaller scale than that caused by logging and farming 
and this is something which will have to be weighed up against the environmental issues. Furthermore, while there's no question that the current rates of deforestation are much higher and quicker, the emerging idea that the Amazon is not the pristine, uninhabited wilderness we thought it was, and that deforestation has a long history there, certainly does some damage to the environmentalist cause. Of course, that doesn't justify chopping the forest down today. It seems that the inhabitants of the Amazon managed to maintain large populations without causing widespread damage. Perhaps through studying them, we can learn their techniques. I have spent this episode talking about how surprised we are to discover that the Amazon was historically much more populated and advanced than we previously thought. Perhaps, however, it should not come as such a surprise. There are not many European sources from the age of exploration and colonisation that refer to the Amazon, and the area was largely ignored by the Spanish and Portuguese. There is, however, an account of one expedition, which provides some very interesting descriptions of the region. Spanish conquistador Francisco de Orellana and missionary Gaspar de Carvajal travelled the length of the Amazon River together. In their account of the journey, they describe large populations, cities and farms. Carvajal says that there was a city which stretched for 15 miles along the river, without any break in the houses. Later, another Spaniard, Cristobal de Acuña, accompanied a Portuguese expedition up the river and also described large populations. He said you could travel for days without a break in the sounds of human activity. These and other European forays brought disease to the Amazon, and as in the Americas in general, huge numbers of indigenous people died. Orellana's expedition were in particular marked by violence, as were others and this could have further reduced numbers. Much later, there was also widespread slavery practiced by rubber barons, and this killed off many natives. Those that escaped retreated into the forest, and their ways of life were disrupted. We will deal with all of these things in later episodes, but it's worth mentioning that these all probably contributed to the forgetting of these accounts by early explorers, as well as to the popular conception that the Amazon is an uninhabited wilderness. As more work is done, we will develop a much stronger understanding of the Amazon's history. Right now we know very little, and there are without doubt many more sites hiding out in the jungle. It's something that I will be watching with interest. Next episode, we move on to the Andes, which along with Mesoamerica forms one of the two cradles of American civilization. Until then, thanks for listening. MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Maryland. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code OLDLINE150. Then 
place a $5 wager on any sport, you'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Maryland today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Maryland only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. From issuance, please play responsibly. For help, visit mdgamblinghelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM National Harbor. Promotional not available in Washington, D.C. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today.